Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I am actually here by myself. Well, actually, that's not the case. I'm, I'm doing an interview today, which I'm very excited about, but Dwayne is not with me today. So I'm here by myself today, and I'm going to be interviewing a very dear friend of mine. This is a person I met many years ago, actually at a yoga studio, and we ended up going on a spiritual voyage together to India. And it was in India that we were doing a yoga class right next to each other. And as I was practicing my yoga, I started to feel the ground shaking a little bit next to me. And I was really confused about what was going on. And at the end of the class, I looked over and said to Gemini, that's who I'm going to be talking with today, uh, my dear friend Gemini. And I said, what were you doing? And she shared with me a somatic practice that she'd been trained in and actually uses herself in her own practice. And it was a trauma release exercise. And that's when I realized that we did some of the same work. And we started to talk about that. And eventually when we got back to the States, I asked Gemini to come and do some work with clients that came to my psychotherapy center, the Center for Relational Healing because these clients were in such acute distress and trauma that they really needed the somatic help. So Gemini did some work at the Center for Relational Healing with me, and then she left the country, uh, which she's still not back in our country, but she went off and did a lot of work, which she'll share a little bit about. And then recently, I talked with Dwayne about the need that we have at Helping Couples Heal for someone who can really help our clients with some somatic practices and really work with the nervous system. And so I asked Gemini if that's something she'd be interested in, and she uh, very happily accepted. And she's been with us for a couple of months now and has started to work with clients. And I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about the importance of doing somatic work, what that looks like, how does that heal trauma, And then how specifically does she work with our clients? So I am going to let Gemini introduce herself. I will just simply say that she is truly extraordinary at what she does. And I have more respect for her personally and professionally than I can quite put into words. So I'm thrilled that she's here and I am excited to introduce her. So Jem, welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. We are really happy that you were able to come on today. Hi, Mani. Thank you for that introduction. I'm, I'm hoping I can create another ground-shaking experience here <laughs> for you. <laughs> of course you can. I totally forgot about that. I was like, where is this going? Um <laughs> 
So as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm English. I want to share a little bit about how I actually came to be in, in California because it feels very relevant. Um, so I grew up like most people in a pretty dysfunctional home. And as a consequence of that, in my early 20s, shortly after my own mother had actually sadly passed away due to cancer. And, you know, I was 21 at the time and I was extremely lost. And the symptoms of my own unresolved trauma had really kind of got out of control at that point, in part triggered by, you know, three years of sort of trying to cope with no coping skills or ability to communicate my needs or talk about my emotions. And it all really like bubbled up to the surface. And um, that's actually when I found yoga. It's interesting. We'll bring those elements in. And um started practicing yoga and for the first time in my life felt something different to how I'd previously always felt. What I didn't realize is that I'd been anxious my whole life. I just didn't have a word for that. I was definitely of that generation prior to what we now have where, you know, many young people are diagnosed earlier with things like ADHD, which I definitely had, but went completely undiagnosed. And so during my twenties, I started this kind of pursuit of healing which actually began with yoga, which is an embodiment practice. Yoga is a somatic practice. I'll, I'll come on to a little bit more about what that is soon. I wanted to actually ask you before you move on, when you said that when you did yoga, you had an experience that was very different than what you'd had before. And I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit on what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I have such a viscerally clear body memory of this. I was walking back from um, this yoga class, which was actually with Shivananda, is the form of yoga in Putney in London. And I realized I was calm and I had never been calm. And the reason I had never been calm is because I grew up in a house with extreme conflict. My parents were frequently arguing and I would say that my dad is probably somewhere on the spectrum. So going into very angry, frustrated states was a sort of continuum for him, which creates a very unsafe dynamic for, you know, children or anyone else in the household. So my system had permanently been stuck in a stress state as a response to that, but I didn't know that. And I mean, this is one of the key elements of CPTSD is we don't realize there's anything wrong because we don't have any before to measure it with because we grew up in those dynamics. And so Wait, let me, let me stop you for a second. So some of our listeners might not be familiar with CPTSD. So you might want to say a little bit about that so they know what you're talking about. Okay, so CPTSD stands for Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And, and most people are familiar with that term PTSD. You know, it's kind of become widely accepted and people throw it around all the time, you know, like, oh, you took my chair away, I have PTSD now. And essentially, PTSD became a diagnostic term actually as a result of the First World War, and then got a deeper understanding from the Second World War, which referred to the state that people in the military came home in after they'd been in a war zone. And some of the defining factors for PTSD are things like experiencing visual flashbacks, isolating, disconnecting from your surroundings, going to rage very quickly, or being completely shut down, and basically not really being able to relate to anything very well anymore. There's a differentiation between that and CPTSD. So CPTSD, that word complex that sort of gets attached to the front end, is defined by the fact that it is typically more the outcome of trauma that has arisen within your 
care environment. So that could be your own home or perhaps a boarding school, or maybe if you were um, ever put into social services or an orphanage or any place where you were for an extended period of time. And to sum it up really where that environment was unsafe in some way. And so that lack of safety could be as a result of emotional neglect, could be as a result of physical, mental, or some other kind of abuse could be because the caretakers themselves have a huge amount of trauma and are therefore in a response of being addicts or being very abusive to each other. So fundamentally, it's complex because it really embeds itself into our entire body in terms of our stress response that we're in as a consequence of that, but also our relational capacity because we're not around people that can show us how to relate well. We're learning dysfunctional relating patterns. And when you look at the effect of that, we don't have this sort of set point of what healthy is as a result of growing up, you know, in good soil. <laughs> so like me, I had no idea anything was wrong. I didn't know that what I was experiencing was not okay. I talk about differentiating between PTSD and CPTSD to make it easy for people to understand that, you know, the PTSD is usually the traumatic response to a huge event, right? Like being in a, like, like a war or, you know, or watching someone you love die or being assaulted, right? Like this big event, whereas CPTSD is this chronic and consistent exposure over time. So like you said, in our family of origin, it's growing up and, and to us, it actually seems pretty normal because as I said, it's consistent, right? And it's embedded in our life. I think though that there is something I found in my own practice, which is it's relational. So for me, the differentiation is this PTSD comes from an event specific trauma. So like you said, it could be losing all your money overnight, right? That's mm -hmm. hugely stressful. It could be a terrible car accident. Um, it could be from birth, from giving birth to a child. So typically CPTSD refers to sustained trauma over a period of time. But for me, the differentiation is also that it's relational. Yeah. Yeah. Because when it is relational, it's very challenging to have trust with other human beings. So it affects, particularly in childhood, our attachment system, but more importantly, it affects our body. And I just wanted to help some people maybe understand that word somatic, because it is a relatively new word in a way, and it's also a very ancient word. <laughs> so soma is a Greek word in its origin, the root of it, which really means body. And so somatic is of the body. That's the definition that we tend to use in the somatic experiencing community. And so over the course of the last sort of 30, 40 years, there's been increased recognition and understanding of the fact that when we are in experiences that are overwhelming to us or really threaten our lives and our survival, there is a biological response to that. And if we're in experiences that are threatening or genuinely a danger to our lives repeatedly over and over again, that biological response essentially gets stuck in a specific gear and it is virtually impossible to get out of that by yourself if you don't know how. And I think as you said that a lot of our listeners right there are going to resonate because for betrayed partners they have been exposed for quite a long time to behaviors that were in place to protect the secret. 
right? The secrets and lies. And that's one of the most painful things for them as they look back. They just see so many years of having been exposed to all of those very unhealthy and traumatic, abusive behaviors and experiences. Yeah. And one of the challenges I see often is those dynamics are often incremental, right? They start off small, but they build and they build and they build. And certainly if you're coming to a place where there's a sort of, you know, a disclosure or there's a sort of finding out of something in a, in a different way, every single act really compounds the trauma from earlier. And so what is essentially happening is we are moving as a, as a human being where we feel safe in the world and we are joyful and playful and we can connect and we can relate to others. And trust others. And trust others into that first line of defense, which is fight flight into the stress response, where we start to feel worried and anxious and go into monkey mind where we can't control our thoughts or our thoughts are so incessant that we can't get any peace from them. And then we start to experience discord in our own life and anger and rage and panic and anxiety. And then at the point at which it gets really too much, we start to go into shutdown and we retreat. We essentially begin to move into that freeze state where we essentially really go into depression. You know, that's where the dark space is, where it feels hopeless and we feel helpless, which I would imagine is where a lot of people come into this space with helping couples heal because it's a very lonely place to be when we're stuck in in that state and we don't know the way out. We can't find the map to navigate. And often it's the case also, I mean, not only are we not taught this in, you know, our schools or any other place in the world, but we also often didn't learn how to deal with that from our parents either. So that compounds the pain of isolation. Yeah. And one of the things that we were so committed to when we created Helping Couples Heal was to make it a community-based organization where we really provide a lot of opportunities to come together with other people to share and support. And so, you know, with betrayal, there's a lot of isolation just because there's some stigma attached to it and not wanting people to know. So people really feel very alone, right? So we really provide a lot of opportunities for community. Which is really beautiful. And especially because community and connection is, is one of the ways that actually supports our vagus health. And I'll come into that in a moment. But actually being in connection to others, being in community can help restore, obviously, that sense of trust. And I think Again, from my experience, one of the things and having actually been betrayed myself in the past many years ago, it's the shame. It's the shame that is associated with the notion that there is something wrong with you because you're not good enough. Why is this person choosing someone else over you? And, you know, that often triggers in us our own wounding from our own childhood of of sort of issues around you know, self-worth or dynamics that we've had where we didn't quite get the level of love that we might have desired, right? So there's a lot happening (laughs) in response to those experiences. Yeah, there's so much here to unpack. So you've done a really great job of explaining sort of why we need the somatic practices. So maybe you can share now a little bit about what that work looks like. So when somebody does come in and they are experiencing all of these symptoms of CPTSD, how do you help them? Sure. So one of the fundamental things to understand is that increasingly it's understood that telling our story, as in just talk therapy, for example, doesn't bring resolution to what's happening in the body, right? 
And even some modalities like EMDR, which can be really great, particularly for PTSD, are not effective in isolation for treating CPTSD because it's not just the the cognitive memories that need to be worked on it. You have to work with that biological response and you have to work also with repairing the breach of trust with self that comes about as well. And so working somatically is helping to shift the body out of these stuck states. And the way I like to kind of explain it is often it's like driving a car, right? We have five gears on the car. And in order to be able to handle all the different terrains that we come across while we're driving on a journey, we need those gears because sometimes we have to go up a steep hill and sometimes we're cruising on flat land and our body is the same. And so when we're stuck trying to get through life in fifth gear, (laughs) that is pretty challenging when you come to a steep hill or you're coming down a steep hill. And similarly, if we're stuck in first gear and we're trying to drive along the freeway, it's going to be painful, right? And so that that is really what we're experiencing in life. We're stuck in a gear and we've lost the capacity to naturally flow between all those states. And it's important to understand that none of those states of our nervous system are bad. We need to be able to naturally shift into a fight-flight response in the face of threat or danger. And our survival mode, which is to go into freeze, particularly in response to a genuine threat on our life, is also essential because it protects us. It's a sort of pretend death in a way. In the animal kingdom, it's called thanatosis. But I would also say that it's not just a genuine threat. It can also be a perceived threat. Absolutely. And then the fawn response, which also comes out of those dynamics where we have learned certain coping mechanisms to survive in situations with people that are unsafe. We can be moving between one or two of those, but not all of them. And that's where it really becomes a problem and starts to show up as symptoms. So symptoms being things like anxiety, endless worry, overthinking certain things, or going into catastrophizing or black and white thinking, or just retreating from the world and shutting down and going into a very sort of dissociated place. So to people like you and I, it's very clear externally what state someone might be stuck in. But for an individual, it's quite hard to detect that. And so one of the things that's absolutely key is helping people expand what we call interception or their interceptive awareness, because we can only kind of take the thermometer of what's happening in our own nervous system if we have capacity for interception. And essentially, That is our ability to notice and feel sensation inside our bodies and through sensation know what our body is asking us for. In most of us, that gets shut down in direct response to physical trauma, including medical interventions, to any kind of um, physical punishment that might involve, you know, being smacked or hit in any way, certainly any kind of sexual abuse. And chronic stress over a long period of time. So actually, that's one of the first places I go is expanding an individual's ability to come inwards and scan what's happening inside and essentially learn to connect to their body sense and then beginning to work to recognize sensation. And from that sensation, we start to be able to notice what's happening in our nervous system. And so I'll just give a couple of examples, but you know, if we're in uh, the 
the state we ultimately want to naturally be in a lot of the time, which I now refer to as friendly and free, but is really the parasympathetic state, right? We feel joy, we feel alive, we feel like we can go and chat to anyone and life is sweet ultimately. And as we start to move into that fight flight, we might notice that we feel tight or we feel heat or constriction, or we feel like a jangling sensation. And a lot of those sensations will often be in the upper torso area because it relates to our body being in that stress state. So that means our heart rate is elevated. It means our breath is shortened and moved up from the belly to the upper chest. We may notice that the jaw is really tight. So we're really kind of moving from the mind and the story into what is really happening in our physiology inside our body. And then we might start to go deeper and, and maybe the sensation is numbness, which is very difficult to feel. If you've been numb for a long period of time and you're not feeling, it's very hard to notice that you're numb because it's an absence of sensation, right? And so that would be more associated with actually being stuck in a free state, um, which, you know, when we've had the shock of something like learning that we've been betrayed by someone that we deep down believed loved us is, you know, a very classic thing that is going to push us into that free state and then essentially we work with a number of different modalities so growing that interceptive awareness going in to investigate what is behind those sensations sometimes um, there's a practice called corrective experience where we take things that happened and we bring in new resources so the things that were missing at the time that made it feel even worse and so we're working to bring more resilience, more resource, more capacity back to the body. So ultimately the aim is to get the body feeling safe again. And there's a huge difference between the body feeling safe and the mind telling you you feel safe. Yes. What you mentioned a little while back, which is that we can go into that internal stress slash trauma response, not just from real events that are happening, but actually from what we perceive to be happening based off traumas we experienced earlier. And I see this a lot. Um, one example would be in response to finding out about a betrayal where your whole relational system is sort of, I'm going to use the technical term, goes wonky. <laughs> <laughs> I say um, oftentimes it's shattered, right? Yes, to a million shattered, pieces. Absolutely. And, um, you know, subsequently we start to feel unsafe in other relationships that are actually perfectly safe. But because of what's happened over there, it creates a new lens through which our body can't feel safe with anyone. And that's terrible because then you're robbed of the wonderful gift of human connection, right? Yeah, and there's so many perceived threats and triggers out in the environment, right? And that can be representative of the betrayal. A lot of our clients are in a situation where not only do they no longer trust the person who has betrayed them, but they, like you said, often don't trust other relationships anymore. And probably the saddest part of all this is often they don't trust themselves. Yeah. And that's another component of using somatic practice. And one of the elements that is key in growing our capacity to really listen to our gut, to our intuition, to those little messages that come up. And that has often actually got dialed down from our own childhood traumas and earlier experiences in life. And so increasing the capacity for that regrowing, that self-trust is really essential because 
at the end of the day, we can't really truly be intimate with someone else or have real relationship, real authentic relationship with someone else if we don't have full relationship with our, ourselves and we don't have trust in ourselves first and foremost. So for me, that's sort of the beginning point, actually, when I'm working with people. So that's a great segue to talk about how you work with people, right? So you you get a client who comes into your office and they're experiencing so much distress and trauma symptoms. What do you do? What do you do with that person? How do you help them? So one of the things I don't do is we don't go into the story. So it's very different to what you would call traditional therapy in that respect, right? Um, I mean, I still get some information as to why they're there, obviously. Um, but working somatically means we're not working with what's happening in the mind or the story. We're working with the body. And so um, returning the physiology to a felt sense of safety is essentially the first step um, because that's been lost, right? And so um, that can be through using guided um, direction. Uh, typically, it involves using something to help provide containment. So, you know, if you think about how we're sort of designed as a human being, our solar plexus, which is sort of between the um, ribcage and the pelvis, um, just around about where our belly button is, is where boundaries begin and end. And so, you know, a betrayal is a massive crossing of our boundary. Um, and one of the aspects of being in hypervigilance is that part of our body usually feels very raw and very overactivated. And so we often work with bringing a pillow and placing it over that area to start to block out all information. Because when we're in hypervigilance, we're taking, we're, we're like trying to take everything in to detect whether or not we're safe, right? And when that's gone from a sort of maybe a one or two to a 10 and we're living in the 10, that is painfully uncomfortable. And it's also destroying our digestive, digestive capacity. So we're working to block everything out so the body can essentially get the chance to kind of reset. Um, so that's one example, but really we're working with containment. We're working with bringing in, uh, grounding to the body so we can come back into our bodies because we often leave our body in response to shock and traumatic experiences. We're learning to resource ourselves as well. So I'm resourcing someone initially, but then teaching someone how to resource themselves. We might look at what additional resources are in their lives to help get them into connection with things that are going to support them as well in that way. Can you elaborate a little bit on some of the resourcing? Because I think there'll be listeners who have been doing a lot of work and are familiar with what resourcing might look like. But there's also going to be listeners here who are hearing you talk and might not be familiar with what resourcing means. Yeah. So there's actually two types of resourcing. One is external. So anything out in the world that we can go and pick up or interact with. And then there's internal, which are our embodied resources. So embodied resources are felt sense memories from past experiences we've had that enabled us to feel safe in the past. And so those memories still exist within our bodies. So tapping someone into that 
but it's not through the mind. So, you know, if I'm working with a client and I'm guiding them to an embodied memory uh, resource, typically they're like, that's crazy <laughs> from the mind when we're discussing it afterwards, because what their body is showing them is something that has enabled them to feel safe is not what they would have thought, right? And actually I have a, a guided practice for this, which I'll share in the notes for this so that it's something people can listen to by themselves. And it, it walks you through that um, experience. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. And really, we want to do that multiple times. We want to find multiple internal resources. So typically, those internal resources are going to be embodied memories from being with a particular person, being with an animal. I know that it would be very easy for me, Marnie, to help you find embodied memories with yes. any one of your dogs. <laughs> yes. Another thing you and I share a deep love for is dogs. Um it could be from a particular place. So maybe we had a favorite tree that we used to go and sit under, but maybe it was 20 years ago and we haven't been anywhere near that tree in 20 years. And yet as I'm guiding someone through this practice, that tree will appear in their mind's eye and then we'll, we'll bring you deeper into that old embodied memory and it will flood your system with those same sensations that you had 20 years ago, which starts to bring restoration to your physiology. It starts to build that resource in an embodied way. I want to share something right here that could be helpful. So this is going to be something a bit vulnerable, but when I was about to give birth, actually Gemini miraculously um, <laughs> happened to be in the country, which really is miraculous. I mean, we're talking right now and she's in New Zealand. She's typically in Thailand. She's all over the place. So she happened to be in Los Angeles where I was when I was about to give birth. And I had to go into the hospital a few days early. I had some complications and I was really scared. I was really scared for multiple reasons, but even just the thought of giving birth is terrifying. And Gemini, you were able to sit with me and resource me in a way that led me to feel ready for the experience. I'm not going to say there was no fear. I mean, that would be, that'd be weird, right? <laughs> to have zero fear, at least I think going into um, giving birth. But I remember saying to you when we finished doing what we were doing, I said, okay, I'm ready. Do you remember that? I do. And I particularly remember my partner at the time who was sitting to the side had fallen asleep. Yes. Uh, and, you know, before that you were really panicked and partially because of the complications and, and suddenly it was like you were given birth two weeks prior to when you were prepared to be giving birth, right? Which I obviously was witnessing. And uh, when he woke up, he was like, what happened to Marnie? She's like, she's ready. And she was before and she was totally freaked out. I was like, oh, I just did a few things, you know. Um, and to me, and I, I just want to take this actually back to my own journey here. So in order to kind of seek my own healing over the years, I went through a whole <laughs> host of attempts at, through different modalities and different things from Tony Robbins seminars to psychotherapist on Harley Street in London to Reiki to you name it. And it was when I bumped into somatic experiencing or somatic trauma recovery with a therapist that I started to see when I moved to California that I really started to understand in an embodied way because I had spent my entire life 
I now understand up until that point. So this is sort of around 30, absolutely completely disconnected from my body and totally dissociated and bouncing. So a CPTSD response for me now I define as when you are stuck bouncing between freeze, fight, flight and fawn. And you have very little access to that friendly and free state. And so through doing somatic work with a therapist I was seeing and beginning to come back into my body, beginning to feel for the first time, beginning to come into relationship with my sensations and emotions and learn how to regulate myself, which is not something I learned in my own home, suddenly what I discovered was that from the place where there had been no escape, there was suddenly a way out. Mm. And that experience of finally seeing some light or having some hope after being in such a dark place for so long, I don't think a person can ask for something more. Yeah. And and I wouldn't even describe it as light or hope. It was, I came back into my body. I started to feel again. I started to learn how to build my resources and spend more time with those and walk away from things that did not feel safe. I regained the ability to detect what something unsafe feels like. And this is key for most of us. If we grew up in an unsafe home, our capacity to detect safety or lack of it is also dialed down. So we tend to find ourselves in repetition compulsion, finding a way into situations that are actually re-traumatizing. And so learning what that means in an embodied sense through our sensations to detect, oh, that doesn't quite feel right, then we don't ignore that. <laughs> you know, we do something in response to that. At this point, I understand the quality of our life really is in relation to the health of our vagus tone or our vagus nerve. And at the root of all everything we've been talking about, the vagus nerve is what determines the interplay between all of our relational capacities and our internal system. And so as we return the body to the capacity to go through all of those nervous system states naturally, our vagus health improves and subsequently our mental and emotional health improves. So it's really a key component and aspect of our of the quality of our life fundamentally. And it seems like this would be a good opportunity to talk about boundaries. Yeah. Because when we talk about not feeling safe in the world or where we grew up in a home or we're in a situation, a relational situation where we don't know how to get our needs met, we don't assert ourselves, something's happening and we do have a feeling that this isn't right or this isn't okay and we're not able to create a boundary to protect us. I think a lot of the somatic work and practice actually helps create boundaries, but in a different way than talk therapy. So I want to just say something here. Oftentimes when I'm working with clients like you, Gemini, they have gone through a lot of different modalities. And in fact, a lot of them come into my office with what we call treatment-induced trauma, where they experience trauma um, in other treatment settings where they were looking for help, but, you know, have gone through all sorts of different types of talk therapies. 
And when I suggest the possibility of working with you, for instance, people's initial reaction is often, I can't do any more. Like I've shared my story a thousand times. I don't want to bring in another person. And I'm able to explain to them that they're not going to have to reshare everything. And they're not going to be sitting in sessions, going through the story and giving all the details that this is an entirely different way of working through the trauma. But with the talk therapy, we are creating boundaries that are able to be listed on a sheet of paper, right? Like we are cognitively creating boundaries. So based on things, for instance, that we might have learned during a disclosure and we find out our partner has acted out in certain ways, maybe um, when they're traveling for business, just as an example. So a boundary that I might you know, help a client set is really no business travel for a period of time until I feel safe again, like, right? Like knowing what I know now, how am I going to feel safe with you going off and doing business travel? So those are the kind of boundaries that I might work on. But I think that when clients come to you and they're doing these somatic practices, the boundary setting is incredibly important, but looks very different. Can you speak to that? Yes, I can. So when we are able to move in from the mind into the body, right? And we move into that interception and we're noticing what's happening in our embodied selves. One of the things that is often the case is that when we grew up in environments where there were no boundaries, right? I.e. there was abuse or just no one had personal space. Then often the way I might work with someone in person would be um, I'm having them pay attention to what's happening inside within their interception and I'm kind of working to find the place where their body feels comfortable and sometimes that involves me opening the door and leaving the room and going downstairs because there's never been a boundary in any shape way or form in their entire existence that is a very very uncomfortable place to live from and so by having that person be able to verbally articulate and me knowing and watching in a very attuned way as as to whether they're when they're fibbing slightly and they're saying oh yeah that's okay and i'm like because i you know very attuned to what's happening in someone's physiology and i wouldn't for example in that place just say well what would happen if i took another step backwards and i can see more relief on their face right but i might be you know 20 yards away from them at this point so we're actually sometimes creating safety from the place of they've never in their life been able to acknowledge that there is no boundary, that they have never been able to assert a boundary, which obviously can lead to codependency, people pleasing, putting up with, which has this really detrimental effect on one's physiology and actually one's physical health. I call that tolerating the intolerable. (laughs) Essentially, it's an extreme born response and it's a survival tactic, right? But then you totally have no sense of self. And so growing embodied boundaries, starting to work typically at the feet, for example. Um, and it's very difficult to explain because it, it might just sound, you know, well, how does that do anything? But when you're working in an embodied way, if you're on your mind right now, this is going to make no sense to you. Because when you're actually working with the body, we're actually dialoguing with the body, not your mind you know, not your projections, not what is going on in the head. We're literally in communication with different body parts. 
So in that scenario, I might be inviting someone to just press against the wall, for example. And then as they come back, noticing what happens to sensation in the body. Because just pressing against the wall when you've had no boundary your whole life can feel overwhelming. When you're actually learning for the very first time to find boundary, to discover that there is an end to you, <laughs> to actually find that, wow, there is separation between me and the outside world. So we work very slowly, first and foremost, because it takes time to allow all parts of you to begin to understand this. And then we move actually towards the really challenging aspect, which is to go from learning that there is separation between you and the outside world, and there can be healthy separation, and starting to bring in the capacity to then actually articulate this. And this is where it gets challenging, because for most people, you know, they've been so squashed and, and crushed by things, the voice is gone. There is no voice. Or if you were to try to speak up in certain dynamics, that would have resulted in such severe punishment or abandonment that it's just become untenable to even think about expressing something. So we practice a lot with learning how to be grounded and cope with that fear response that sets in, which pushes you into fight flight, right? Pushes you into dysregulation and to resource that so that you can actually find your voice and say, I need fill in the blank. And it, it is, it can be physiologically extremely overwhelming. I, I lived, you know, definitely the first 30 years of my life in a chronic fawn response. I never spoke my truth. I had no clue how to do that. Well, actually, that's not true. The words were always there in my head. I had thousands of conversations inside my own head about what I was going to say to people. Oh my God, me too. And they went so well, right? Yes, they were, they were so successful. This <laughs> was a fantastic, great outcome. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I just assumed everyone else was doing the same. When I learned that that was not the case, and I discovered that my own dysregulation was so intense, right? It overwhelmed me. And essentially, it is what Pete Walker would call an emotional flood or an emotional flashback. So we go from being adult me or adult Marnie, and inside we drop into a very tiny, small, you know, version of ourselves who is still terrified to speak up relationally to the person that was once overwhelming to us in our childhood. And so, you know, we are no longer our adult. And so one of the practices we also work with is, um, I call it grow. So it's a combination of grounding ourselves, resourcing ourselves, constantly orienting ourselves to present moment, which would look like internally making the statement, I am Gemini, I am an adult woman, I have capacity, or I'm learning how to walk away from situations, people or places where I don't feel safe or respected, right? So we're growing our relationship to the fact that we are now an adult, and we're essentially unblending ourselves from that young child that is flooding us internally, that keeps us stuck in that fawn response, that prevents us from being able to vocalize and ask specifically for our needs to be met, which is essentially having boundaries. Thank you for that. I think that that is such an important part of all of this. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Such a necessary part. So what I would love for you to, to explain now is when a client 
comes in to work with you. So at HCH, if somebody is really needing this work and wanting this work, we are actually requiring a minimum commitment of eight weeks. And for people that are wondering why, why can't I just come, you know, once a week or, you know, when I want to come or when I'm in a, in a um, period of crisis or distress, what would you say <laughs> to that person about why there really needs to be a commitment? And what do you do in those eight weeks? Well, first of all, it's okay if we're, you know, if we're in crisis, because that's usually when we need the help. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that is really vital, particularly when we've had our whole world turned upside down, is reestablishing consistency and safety. And so by having that structure of, you know, a, a container for a set period of time where Ideally, you know exactly when it is, same time each week, which also supports that sense of bringing back in stability, groundedness. And then really over the course of those eight weeks, we are seeking to restore safety to the system internally, so to the physiology. And that's done through a combination of education. So I have a lot of resources and materials that I direct people to, both some of my own that I've created and some are external. And then we work with these somatic practices, so the things I've just been describing and and many other techniques, to begin to grow that ability to actually see what's really going on with your own nervous system and course correct that and give you the tools. This is key. I'm really all about giving people new tools so they're learning their own somatic self-care practices so that even after those eight weeks, you have a new life skill set to work with that doesn't go away. And then we can circle back to what I had said at the beginning of this conversation, which is when we were doing that yoga class all those years ago in India, and you were doing this self-care practice of, you know, trauma release exercises, the shaking, the ground shaking work right next to me, right? Like that's exactly what you were doing. You'd, you'd learned this modality and then you were able to use it yourself outside of a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I use all the tools that I teach in my own practice every single day for myself, with my clients. You and I had a conversation about this the other day, but where I'm at in my professional and personal life, I look back now on my own journey and I'm um, next week I turn 49. So, you know, I'm kind of in the middle of my life experience and um, I'm slightly horrified <laughs> that I didn't get taught any of this stuff, right? I feel the same way. You know, both my parents were BBC journalists. So I got this sort of investigative journalist mindset embedded into me. And I believe that that is what enabled me to find my way to the things that actually helped, right? It was such a personal quest and then it became professional quests. And, you know, now I have so much pleasure from spreading this work. And I also um, run training programs and educate others. But I look back and I'm like, wait, I've been inside this body or I had been inside this body for 30 something years. And then I started to discover these things about how to actually work in harmony with my body, how to know when things have been too much. And then I can do certain things, very simple things. This is what's challenging. So simple when you know how. And what that does is really allow me to handle pretty much any situation. Even if someone's standing, ranting, screaming in my face, or, you know, I've encountered a horrific experience out in the world because 
it becomes innate within you. When I look back, I did a number of Tony Robbins experiences in my 20s and um, this notion that, you know, giving people tools that they can work with themselves so that we come back to our sovereignty is really key and something I, I always had a strong intention for. And, and what I really love is when actually sometimes I work with whole families and take parents and the kids through this so that they can all work with these practices together. They can all have the same understanding of nervous system, boundaries, um, different relational capacities so that the whole family system can be being supported because everyone's on the same page. Everyone has the same language. And so my biggest dream is that this is something that eventually will be taught inside schools so that we grow up with these skills rather than sort of stumbling away to them as a result of a crisis. That is my greatest wish as well. You know, we just did a two-part podcast episode with Harvell Hendricks and his wife, um, Helen LaKelly Hunt. And one of the things we talked about was their vision for bringing dialogue out of the clinic, right, out of a therapeutic setting and bringing it out into the world, to the public, because we really, you know, we might think we know how to, how to talk, but we really don't know how to talk and we certainly don't know how to talk successfully. And so it's that same thing, like, why do we have to go to a therapist and why do we have to pay all this money to learn things that truly we should be learning from the time that we are able to study or we're able to have a cognitive understanding? Um, it's baffling to me. And so I have that same vision. And what I what I really see all of this as is going from a place of disempowerment to feeling that you have no resources, you can't tolerate the intolerable, you can't set boundaries, to going through this process and doing all of this work and becoming embodied and being in touch with our senses and then moving into a state of empowerment. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add something there, something that I sort of fully got to appreciate and understand probably about six years ago was that our whole education system which is obviously very valuable in many respects, but the very fact that we're kind of forced to sit in a chair for, you know, seven or eight hours a day and primarily sort of inhale information takes us out of our senses. So my understanding is that we are educated. We are forced to live in our heads and Nine times out of 10, when I come into an initial connection with a client or a student, it's very clear that there's a severance between head and body. And this interception that I'm talking about is dialed right down to like 0.05. And as we grow it and we come back into our senses, there is such a giant transformation in terms of true well-being and restoration of all the lost parts of ourselves and so it's quite the journey to go on and i there is a quote i'm terrible at remembering the names of who might said this but sometimes the longest journey we will ever go on is from the mind to the body that is so true and you know this conversation has brought me back as i'm reflecting to a conversation that i had many many years ago it was before i had even gone to graduate school to study clinical psychology but it was a, it was a therapy session with my own therapist and i was so in my head every session i was just reporting every detail of what was happening in my life and i really wouldn't go any deeper 
And my therapist was a somatic practitioner, and she was always really attempting to help me get into my body. I was very resistant. And one day she said, will you please just give me five minutes? That's all I'm asking for, just five minutes. And I said, fine. I was, I was so bad and <laughs> frustrated. Yes, very resistant, you know, very rebellious. And I said, fine, okay. And she said, okay, all I want you to do is close your eyes. I said, okay. And she talked me through getting in, into my breath. And, and then she just asked me one question when she'd sort of put me in that place somatically. She said, what are you needing right now? What do you notice? And all of a sudden, I just said, oh my God, I am so hungry. I have the worst headache and I have to pee. And I swear to God, I didn't realize any of that before she guided me into, into my body. And it was less than five minutes, by the way. It was probably one minute. And I always remember that. I remember thinking we really do disconnect from our body and ultimately then from ourselves. And the reason we disconnect is because it's not safe. And so we go into that autopilot and we come, I mean, dissociation, we come out of our body. But when we are in survival mode, this is such a perfect example interception is how we detect all those things you described. I have a headache, so I'm in pain, I need to pee, and I'm hungry. And all of that starts to get shut down. It's why actually, as we go into depression, self-care becomes so challenging because we're not even noticing that we might need to go to the bathroom or wash or eat or any of those very key elements that actually also help our overall health and well-being, right? Right. And if we were in our wise mind, when we're in that state of either collapse or depression, you know, deep anxiety, if our body and our mind were connected, then cognitively, we would be able to know what we're needing. We would say, okay, I need to call a friend right? I need to get out of this state of isolation. But there becomes such a huge disconnect with those parts of our, our parts of ourselves. And so I can't say enough about how vital this work is when we are experiencing trauma and traumatic symptoms. And so for anyone listening, if this resonates, if you're interested in learning more, if you are interested in working with Gemini, please visit our website, helpingcouplesheal.com. We will post in our show notes some of the materials that Gemini referenced today in our conversation. And you are always able to schedule a 15-minute consultation to talk with Gemini or any of our other coaches to make sure it's a good fit for you. But more than anything, I hope that you take from this some information that's going to help you go out and find the tools and resources that you need to recover from the trauma that you're experiencing. So Gemini, thank you. Thank you for coming here and talking to our listeners and giving such a wonderful overview of trauma and the nervous system and really how we can offer relief right? How we can offer relief and help people heal. And on a personal note, I feel so grateful to know you and to be able to support you in bringing all of these incredible gifts that you have to the world and particularly to our clients. So thank you. It's a pleasure. And I'm very excited to be here in service in that way. And thank you for the opportunity again to connect with people who are in need. And so thank you, Marnie. 
So thank you to everyone who's been listening. We are always grateful for your trust in us. And we look forward to talking again on our next episode of the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Until then, take very good care and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.